In episode 13 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss whether or not Joel is a Kiwi, how to have a meaningful beta with versioning even, some techniques for building engaging social websites, revisit the classic 12-part Joel test, and the amazing but all-too-short life of Alan Turing on IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. I was listening to Adam Curry and um, John C. Dvorak going at it. They have a podcast uh, that's uh, pretty good called No Agenda. And they were talking about how the Skype thing, like uh, Adam Curry's in England and and uh, John C. Dvorak is in California. And when they do Skype, there's like a half-second delay there or a second delay. and. Wow. Uh, they were talking specifically about that phenomenon of how that little bit of latency makes it seem like uh, the the other person isn't laughing at your jokes. They're sort of begrudgingly conceding maybe after some thought to provide a little bit of simulated laughter <laughs> because of that slight delay there. Oh, yeah. Latency is, is evil stuff, no doubt. It's so, a conversation uh, destroyer. If we ever get anybody to listen to our podcast, uh, apparently you can switch to ISDN and then you get you get no latency. Yeah, yeah, we're only going across. We're not going across an ocean like they are, right? No, yeah, we're not going nearly as far. And I think when we get to, I think uh, most of the problem is the Fog Creek uh, uphill bandwidth coming out of Fog Creek, uh, which is shared by a lot of people, and that problem goes away as soon as we move offices in a couple of months. So, you guys ought to upgrade your AOL dial-up connection to something. You know, like ISDN would be. I heard they have fourteen four four modems now. They have ninety six hundred. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so I, I have something from the previous show. Uh, you mentioned that you're an honorary Kiwi, an honorary New Zealander. Not honorary. No, I'm an actual New Zealander. I never said honorary. There is no honor. Well, okay. there is. I mean, it, it is a great right. to be a New Zealander. Well, explain, please. <laughs> what? 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 Well, why are you a New Zealander? You're not from – that was not mentioned in your Wikipedia entry. Um, so I, I, I cannot believe it to be true. <laughs> They, uh, the, my father is a New Zealander. Do you want me to show you my passport? Good God. No, I, I didn't know about this. But is, no, I, is, you're really New yes. Zealander? Yes, I'll, ta- really? I'll, t- I'll tell you the story. My father is a New Zealander. And for a brief period of time, I don't know if this is still true. Actually, it is still true. Uh, before they had the internet, if you wanted to visit Australia, which I did, uh, you needed a visa as an American citizen. And nowadays, you go on the website and you pay $10 and it's done. But you used to have to go to their consulate and in person and apply for a visa to visit Australia. And I went to the Australian consulate and stood in line for hours and hours and hours. And uh, this was uh, the consulate in Rockefeller Center in New York. And I noticed that there was no line across the hall at the New Zealand consulate because they don't require visas. And uh, so it occurred to me that maybe New Zealanders don't need visas to visit Australia. So I went to the New Zealand consulate and asked if this was true. And they said, indeed, New Zealanders can visit Australia without uh, a visa. And I said, well, I want to be a New Zealander. My father's a New Zealander. Can I get a New Zealand passport? And they said, certainly, sir. Go down to the basement, get some pictures taken, bring them up. And I did, and they did, and they made me a passport. That was nice. It was very nice. So now I'm a New Zealand. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, by, by birth, I guess I'm a New Zealand citizen. Oh, very cool. I didn't know. I, I know that um, Fogbugs mm-hmm. has the Kiwi logo. Mm-hmm. That's right. right? The, that's a part of the reason. That is the uh, national flower, actually. People think it's a national bird, but it's the national flower of New Zealand. The kiwi is a flower? No, I'm just kidding. It looks a lot, okay. <laughs> I was say, it looks a lot like a mammal. Uh, what do I know? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a, quote, scientist, unquote. It looks so like a mammal. It's a bird. Yeah. It's a flightless exactly. bird, and uh, that's his bug. That's why it's bug bugs. Get it? He has a bug. He can't fly. Yes. No, the, the, he is very cute. I do actually enjoy that aspect of, and he goes to sleep at night, which is frequent when I'm using the system. So, oh, I'm glad that you cute. that you noticed that. That's a good sign. Yes, totally. 
what about the name Fog Creek? Why Fog Creek? Where, where, what's fog and creaky about yeah. New York City? Well, um, we had a little creek in our original office um, called Fog Creek. I'm not getting it. You like, actually had uh, a creek? Yeah, uh, you know, just like, well, uh, more of a, a leaky faucet, I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't really call it a creek so much as a, 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 a dripping faucet that, that could not be completely contained. But surely naming, I know naming is really difficult, and so much thought goes into these names. I mean, what, is there any other meaning to the name? Um, no. Okay. Yeah. Just, okay. I'm a little disappointed, I, I gotta tell you. <laughs> Not it, quite as exciting as the, I was hoping it would be. There, you know, these things go in waves. Uh, you know, different trends as time goes on, they become different things. Right now, it's very important to have something that's unique in Google, and uh, and to be able to get the domain name, which is why you get all these. And that's an actual name of a Web 2.0 startup. Well, that was a little scary. Yeah, it's just a lot of Q's and X's, and the Hebrew yes. letter Chet. Yes. Yes. So I want to give a shout out. Somebody sent in a question recording, and I totally abused their trust and stole their topic and posted it on my blog. Uh, this guy uh, UV yeah. sent us a link, or sent sent us a link to the Spartan programming, which I like so much that I, I kind of stole it and put it on my blog. But he sent us recordings as well, so I, then Spartan I felt really guilty. Programming. I saw that on your blog, and I thought, you know, we, it's true. We only really hire programmers with great abs here at Fuck, <laughs> and I'm in favor of that policy. Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I went through a period where I actually wasn't really writing a lot of code, and now that I'm working on Stack Overflow, I actually am spending quite a bit of time in Visual Studio now, and it, it was just interesting how I was reading through that, the, the whole principle of sort of minimalism when it comes to code. Now, not you can obviously take it to an absurd degree where you could be inlining everything, and but within reason, I mean, minimalism definitely is where I've been going with my code over the last five to ten years, so it was just kind of fun to read that and have sort of a a word that describes that philosophy. And then somebody pointed out that Steve Yegi had written basically the same post, but mm. like in 4,000 words. <laughs> I have. It's funny. <laughs> and I read it, and I was like, no, you're right. That is basically the same thing as, as Spartan programming, but, you know, much, much longer. And it's ironic that, and poor Steve. And I, by the way, I did contact Steve. Um, he might be able to, if we want to have him on the podcast as sort of a, uh, a guest. Oh, great. Uh, in like a month or so, he's got like a vacation and he's got some deadline at, at Google that he's working on. Uh, but I would love to have him on because we talk about him all the time and I feel like, I kind of feel like he's here even when he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> he's watching the ceiling. Yeah, like ceiling cat. Very busy. Um, very cool code. On, 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 on the topic of Spartan coding, I've been noticing the same thing, the same kind of phenomenon. I haven't given it a trendy name, but uh, in Visual Studio, or actually ASP.NET programming with C Sharp, uh, in version 2.0, it got possible to do a lot of things in very concise declarative ways. So uh, an awful lot of web pages that just present, do basic CRUD stuff, you know, present data and uh, format data and, 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 and let you edit, update, and delete data. Um, absolutely stunning how much of that can be done uh, entirely by declaratively creating um, these uh, s s tags in your HTML file. Um, much of which can be done with actually a graphical designer. So, like literally sitting on your left hand and just using your right hand with the mouse, uh, you can create you know fairly complex CRUD apps uh, in a way that's uh, really awesome. And and I and I've actually found that um, my old crappy code is the code where I have twenty or thirty lines of C sharp doing something, and the elegant uh, new code is the code where there's I, I, almost nothing in C sharp and almost everything is in the uh, ASPX file in the form of, uh, what do you call that, ASP.NET HTML, embellished HTML. I don't know if there's a word for it, but I know what you mean. It's basically a hybrid of HTML markup and then server directives. Right. They're not even really server directives so much as like these custom tags. And the way ASP.NET works is that each of these tags uh, at runtime becomes an object. It gets created as an object, and all these objects are nested in each other in the same way as your your file is, and then just a magical sequence of events happens, cascades over all these objects, and generates your final page. And it uh, might call into your C-sharp code, but it might not. And I actually thought, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you, by this point, you've already read Marco's uh, reply uh, to, uh, to... Ooh, no, I hadn't seen that, actually. Uh, I'll go look that up. I, yeah. Is it on his Tumblr blog? Yeah, probably. I have not seen that. Anyway, he said, um, basically, that we're idiots for using ASP.NET. 
and we should be using PHP like everybody else. It's perfectly good. And um, Marco, you are wrong. You, sir, are wrong. PHP is a generation behind ASP.NET. ASP.NET version 2.0 with C Sharp. Writing web apps like that is like is like driving around in a Lexus SUV, and you PHP guys are like riding bicycles. Oh, this is cool. I'm reading it now. My lyrics are bottomless. So let me tell you, Marco, if you're a uh, Flight of the Concords fan, we can never be enemies because I love everybody that loves Flight of the Concords. So we all we always have that in common. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've really warmed up to the concept that PH, it, the whole thing about you know PHP sucks, but it doesn't matter. It really is true. I think it's possible to write good code in PHP yeah. and produce some really amazing sites. The uh, one thing that I will like, say, you know what? But ASP.NET, it's like having electric windows and electric locks and leather seats with with air conditioning and cushions and oh, it's just a luxurious well, experience. And you pay for it because you're going to have to pay eight hundred dollars to put windows on every server in your data center. So it's the expensive option, but but you you get your money's worth. Yeah. Well, the one thing I will say is that. Compiled performance is, is, I think, underrated a little bit by the people who do dynamic stuff, mm-hmm. because the way it is now with compilation, I mean, you get you have to really, really screw up to cause yourself a performance problem. Whereas in PHP, I think you have to be a lot more careful because everything's interpreted, and people always forget like the, these interpreted languages. I mean, it's like a factor of a hundred the performance difference. I mean, literally, like in McConnell's Code Complete too, when he did, he did the rewrite of Code Complete, he put in. Um, uh, examples in like uh, Python and I, I don't know if it was PHP, but point being, he was comparing, you know, compiled to interpreted, and the difference is still as large in relative terms now as it was back in 1993 when he originally wrote that. It's just very fundamental to, uh, I think, the science of languages. I mean, there's a lot of really good work going on around JavaScript to make it faster, uh, but I think there's a limit to what you can do, and mm-hmm. people underestimate the, the performance difference you're going to get. Now, that said, you're going to spend most of your time talking to the database anyway, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think it just lets you be a little more loose in the way that you program and not have to worry about performance as much. I mean, to me, that's, I, I think, one of the major differences. Right. But, yeah, no, that's cool. I didn't, I'm glad you pointed that out because I had looked for a response and I didn't see one. So I'll have to read that at some length later. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about Stack Overflow and where we are. So people are asking about the beta, and you were asking about the beta, and you saw how on the last podcast I snuck that in at the very end oh, of the wait. schedule. Oh, yeah, oh, there's another thing Marco was wrong about. Yeah, he's just we could just we could just we could just rant on and rail on him because he was also saying that we're idiots for doing this whole thing in the dark instead of showing it to people and doing incremental whatever. And of course we're gonna show it to people and do incremental things. So he did wrong. Wrong. Well Right, right. So l- let me talk about that because you said quote, it can be missing limbs, which is what's a, there's all these disturbing analogies like we're gonna <laughs> flesh something out. It's like what do we start with a zombie and we just start grafting flesh? It's disgusting, right? <laughs> you start with a skeleton and then you start basically you get one of those one of those things that they, they, they that the builders use to put the glue behind the tiles. Spatula. One of those called spackling knife. And you start slathering the flesh onto the skeleton. Right. See, I've already lost my appetite from just that description. It's horrible. That's disgusting. Uh, yeah, it's a little disgusting, a little maybe too exciting. Uh, so my feeling with, with Stack Overflow is we've identified a few set of core features that I think are important, like that, that have to be there. And one thing I've noticed, and this is in no way meant as a dig on our audience or anyone, it's just really human nature. People can't comment on things they can't touch and see and use, right? No. They cannot give you meaningful feedback on a drawing, or like a, a, w- the worst is a verbal description, right? Because well, people don't really try, listen, don't they? <laughs> well, first of all, people don't really listen to you. They hear half of what you're saying half of the time, maybe on like odd numbered weeks of <laughs> when you have a full moon. Um, but having something that people can touch and use is where you get valuable feedback. So one of the reasons I'm pushing back slightly on the schedule. So just so everybody knows where we are, the original plan was to have beta this month. We might be able to do that maybe at the very, very end of the month, but I think it's looking more realistic that it's going to be slightly into next month, um, maybe two weeks. And the reason for that is editing. We haven't gotten to editing at all, and it's a huge part of the system, right? Like, you know, we've talked about how much we admire Wikipedia and how blog posts get out of date because you can't effectively edit them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this really has to be there, even from the, the aspect of, say, I post something. Yeah. And then I make a spelling mistake or something stupid. Okay, I've so, got to be able to go in and change my stuff. Yeah, I don't believe that has to be there on day one. Well, I do, though, because the whole keep, keeping the system alive, plus just being able to edit your mistakes. 
But I mean, I have, I've had discussion forums for years where people can't edit their mistakes, and you know, they survive and they get an audience. Not the end yeah. Well, I, I, this isn't something that's going to take us a month to implement. I think it's going to be one of those one, probably more like a two-week thing to really get it working. Um, but that's the main reason, actually. In case you're nobody's going to have enough karma to edit in the first two weeks anyway, so just launch without it. We'll wait till people get the karma, and you can just tell them that they need e- even more karma before they can edit. Well, you don't need karma. You don't need karma to edit your own stuff, though. Oh, right? I see. Yeah, uh, yeah. Weren't you going to make a, like a thirty-minute rule or something like some people have? People, you know what, Jeff? People <laughs> launch these conversation things all the time without editing, and sometimes they even see it as a virtue where they're like, this makes people extra careful of what they post because they know they're not going to be able to edit it, so they double-check it three times. Well, i got to tell you, uh, the way Twitter works, I feel like there's no way we can have worse downtime than Twitter. I feel like whatever we do, it'll be better in terms of uptime than what Twitter has. Does so, Twitter have editing? No, it doesn't. Uh, well, you, ah. can delete, you can delete your tweets, though, you which can. we can't even – we don't allow that. They're out there. They've gone in the ether. That's like unsending an email. Okay, so the official statement of record is maybe this month if the stars align correctly, but more realistically, definitely by the middle of next month. I think, I mean, I've talked to the team and we all sort of have a consensus that we believe that's an achievable timeline. So that the key pieces are all there, so people can actually give us meaningful feedback on uh, all the features. Okay. Um, plus, it's it's a big beta. There's like 350 people in my beta list now, plus like my friends and your friends. And I assume people at Fog Creek would be allowed to go into it. So this is like pretty big. Weekends from home. <laughs> this is going to be full of useful things that will help them do their job, though. Let me let me yeah. play a question that's kind of related to that because the okay. answer to that question is the next thing I wanted to say. Hi, this is Isaac Moses in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks a lot for the podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Do we have a lot I'm of wondering. listeners in Baltimore? It seems like all these questions are coming from Baltimore. I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with the. Maybe we're being blocked. The rest of the United States. I'd like to hear the How rest of the question. How do you plan to get yes. people who know stuff to keep coming back to your site and find questions that they know the answers to? Thanks. Bye. Yeah, I don't. It's a problem. Ah, this is a, this is a feature that's near and dear to my heart because I just implemented uh, what we call badges. So, I am also a big fan of the Xbox 360. I believe it is one of the best products Microsoft has released in a do long time. Do they call time. them badges? Much better. Uh, they're called achievements in the Xbox 360 system, and it's amazing how seductive these things are. Like when I read about this, I, I came late to the Xbox 360 because I was trying to get the most out of the last generation of gaming platforms. I don't really like to buy a lot of consoles. It's just there's a lot of hidden costs, and I'm really a PC gamer. I'm sort of a again, I'm a snob. I'm a hardware snob, so of course I'm not going to be into that. But Rock Band really pushed me over the edge. Uh, and one of the things I found after reading about achievements, I was like, oh, that's dumb. You know, as you play the game, you do things, and you get these little badges, these achievements that show up in your profile yeah. online so people can see them. See, that's the key thing. Other people can see them. That's a really important piece of this. I was like, oh, that doesn't matter. And then as I played the Xbox 360, I got these achievements, and I became totally obsessed with them. I was like, I have to have all these achievements for these games that I like, right? Because I just I want them. I must have them. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how, how quickly I turned around on that. So we came to Stack Overflow. It's like, I want to have something like achievements in uh, Stack Overflow. So we have this badges system, which is very much analogous to Xbox 360 achievements. And there's really three roles that these things play. The more I played games on the 360, the more I understood the genius of the achievements. They do three things. One, they encourage people to do all the things that the game lets you do. Right? So some people will play a game and like never do some big piece of it just because they never see it or never get around it to it or whatever. Now looking at but it from the, the outside. It totally seems boring yeah. from the outside, but I'm telling you, once you get in, yeah. you, it's so seductive. No, I mean that part of the game may look like, um, oh, God, I don't want to go into that room. That's crazy. But then you, this is a badge yeah, there that exactly. you want. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, like why would, I, why would I bother with multiplayer? I don't enjoy multiplayer, but there's a multiplayer badge. So you're like, well, it's not too tough to get this this entry level badge, so I'm going to go do the multiplayer, and then you might really enjoy it, or you know, you might think it sucks or whatever. So along those same lines, in Stack Overflow, you will collect badges, what I call bronze badges, for doing the basic things you can do on Stack Overflow, such as voting, asking a question, answering a question, uh, tagging something as offensive gives you a, a spam cop badge. Um, so you will be rewarded for doing the things you're normally supposed to do. Uh, beyond the, the basic level of functionality, there's additional badges for people that sort of enjoy the, the site and want to like actually get all the achievements, sort of the completionists. 
um, who actively participate in the site. And then there's the hardcore people, right, which would be me by definition because I'm I moderator on the site. But we try to get all the badges just because we can. Um, so it really supports, I think, several different methods of interacting with, with software, and it's a really neat concept. It's also very fun and playful. Uh, other people can view my gamer card and see uh, what I'm good at and what I enjoy doing based on which badges I've chosen to to get or achievements. So that's one way uh, we're going to encourage that uh, for people to come back. But Joel, did you have any other? Um, yes. What were we talking about? Oh, uh, yeah. I like the badges. <laughs> I think people will 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 cooperate just to just because it's it's fun to be an expert and to say, oh, I know the answer to that. I can I can help some people. Uh, and, I, and I think they will come back kind of partially to establish themselves as an expert in a particular field, um, partially uh, just because it's, it's like, you know, why do people play trivia games? Because it's fun to, to rattle off the answers and, and be right. But, um, you know, I've also thought about sort of, uh, um, you know, what do I want to get out of Stack Overflow personally? You know, one is obviously being able to ask uh, and answer questions. Um, but, you know, like I have certain expertise on things like uh, the business of software. Well, also QuickBooks. QuickBooks. Oh, yeah, that's right. QuickBooks XML. I forgot everything I, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot everything I ever knew about that. But we wrote a, we got a lot of QuickBooks integration code that I wrote. Um, anyway, right. uh, the uh, uh, the business of software. So I, what I'm what I was thinking of doing actually is just have a little tag called um, you know Biz of Software or Ask Joel or or both, maybe, Ask Joel and Biz of Software, and just maybe subscribe to an RSS feed for that tag uh, when new questions come in, and if they're interesting, I'll go answer them, and then I can post point, point people on my website to my answers on that topic, um, you know, just in general. So it's almost like my blog, kind of, like you could subscribe to see Joel answering questions about the business of software. You can ask me questions. You can, uh, and uh, to me, you know, I do this for the same reason as I create a, a website, as, as I create Joel on software, because I want to kind of share the knowledge. Right. And it, it's. I want to emphasize again how low friction our site is. I think you will be very hard-pressed to find another site that lets you participate with as few clicks as we do and as few sort of logins. You don't actually even need a login to participate, which is And in fact, even rare. if you have one, it doesn't work, as I'm discovering beta. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to get Joel's login. So just to get an idea of where we are, I said we're still in beta. and we're, Joel cannot log in. We can log in. But I, I need to do a lot of more testing. It lets testing me in. It just never shows my, my name. I know, which defeats yeah. the whole point because your reputation is tied to you. So you're right to be yeah, uh, concerned by that. Uh, we will also have voting. I should have mentioned that uh, you're going to have your sort of semi-traditional voting system so people can vote on the questions and the mm -hmm. answers. Those votes will transfer to your uh, uh, your rating as a user, your uh, uh, reputation score is what we're calling it. Um, one thing that, that Jared did that I thought was very clever and I totally agreed with without, without even consulting him on it is up mods are twice as worthy as down mods. So voting down doesn't hurt people very much, whereas voting them up helps them a lot. So negative votes are sort of downgraded yeah, in our system. They still count, elsewhere. but not as much. And, yeah, that always bothered me, like on Reddit and places like that. One downvote completely cancels somebody else's upvote. And the problem with that, and I think we've talked a little bit about this before, not on the podcast, is when people downmod, there's a lot of reasons they'll downmod something. One could be that they just don't like you, right? Which is valid, I guess. But it doesn't really touch the topic that you happen to be talking about. It's just they, don't, they just don't like you. Or they just don't like the technology stack that you, they use. So they're going to downmod everything you enter because they don't like your choices in life, which is great, right? <laughs> so one way to combat that is to uh, reduce the value of down mods, to sort of acknowledge that down mods are kind of broad, whereas an up mod is, is pretty clear. It's like, I like what you're saying, right? I mean, I guess you could have people that just up mod everything you say because they're yes men or whatever, but that's would be really rare behavior so there's like, in my this For a given post, there might, you might find eight reasons to object to it, all of which would cause you to down mod. But uh, but only one reason to really like it, and so so a, a post on which uh, there people are really evenly divided would get eight down mods and one up mod, even though they're sort of evenly. Right. I mean, I guess that's just my t my intuitive. I don't really have any science or data. To well, the only thing that that reminds me of is that uh, you know Paul Graham created Hacker News after uh, the experience of Reddit, and he just doesn't have downvotes unless maybe I'm just not 
powerful enough to see them. But on the homepage, it's only upvotes. In the comments, there's uh, up and down votes. Uh, but the homepage is just upvotes. And you must have some right. theory behind that. Right. Uh, some other things we're doing on Stack Overflow that uh, are pretty standard. And we should also bring up uh, the Joel test. I want to talk about the Joel test. Okay. I still like that. That's one of my favorite things that you did. That was great. That's a classic. Yes. Classic. Long Joel. before I jumped the shark. <laughs> Back when Joel actually mattered. Let's talk about that. Uh, so the Joel test, and the other thing I like about the Joel test, not to get into promotion of your stuff, which I have no reason to promote your stuff, but your job site, one thing I liked about your job site is it integrates with the Joel test. So when somebody posts a job mm -hmm. listing, they'll say, well, here's this job we have. Here's why it's awesome to work for us. And also we meet you know, 10 out of 12 of the Joel test rules. Mm -hmm. um, and these are great rules, and I thought that was a very clever integration point. I really appreciated that. Um, and I've actually been going through the Joel test. I mean, it's something you naturally arrive at as a programmer, I think, when you work on a project. Mm -hmm. And another example of that is we just hooked up uh, uh, cruise control. So as we check in code, it actually does a build for us, uh, deploys it to the server, mm -hmm. right, and sends us an, a summary email of, okay, here's the changes that went in, here's the build process. And it, it does unit testing as well. So there's some basic unit tests we have that run to make sure things are kind of working. Um, and... and I think that's a very natural evolution. Um, and I guess that's Joel test number three, do you make daily builds? It's a little beyond that, actually, above and beyond. Uh, but certainly, uh, it, it meets the Joel test. Somebody, um, yeah, people um, have asked me over the years, why don't you add unit testing to the Joel test as a 13th requirement that you do unit testing or test-driven development or some form of test-first or automated testing uh, as a part. And, and, and the truth is, uh, it's a, you, you have to go back and remember what the Joel test is. It is not a complete encyclopedia of all good practices, uh, nor is it a, uh, like the Ten Commandments or something. Uh, what it is is a metric for the quality of a team that's pretty hard to fake uh, and is a pretty good way to quickly uh, decide whether a team is a good development team or not. And it was originally designed to be a way for job applicants to look at a, a job. I mean, originally, the early days, uh, I wrote that because... Um, I wrote it because a friend of mine came to me and said, you know, I, I was applying for a bunch of jobs and um, some of these companies look organized and some of them look disorganized. And I found that a good way to find a good employer was to ask them during the interview to show me their last spec. And if they looked at me like I, they didn't know what I was talking about, then I didn't really want to work there. Um, because the, Right. And this was eight This was eight years ago, to give you the credit. Uh, that I think yeah, well, I probably wrote it eight years ago, but this that particular incident was probably 10, 11, 12 years ago that somebody mentioned this. And I thought about that and said, hey, that's pretty clever. And I tried to think of what are some of the other things that you would want to uh, check that your employer is doing to decide if it's a good place to work. And I thought about how I took a job once because the interview was so difficult that I realized that I probably wouldn't be working with morons. Uh, and suddenly I realized, you know, I don't want to work at a place that doesn't make its programmers do some programming questions during during the interview process. And uh, and so I come up with this list of 12 things, which honestly, if you're going on a job interview and you're interviewing with several people during the course of the day, and they all say at the end of the interview, so do you have any questions for me? You could probably find out information about the Joel test, you know, in the first uh, three or four interviews. You can probably get answers to all those 12 questions. So what do you use for source code control? Oh, we just carry floppy disks around the hallway. <laughs> you know, okay, hmm, yeah, I want to be working here, right? And uh, and so that's what it was designed for. So just because something is a good development process doesn't, or a good development practice doesn't mean it ha has to be on the Joel test. And now the other thing about unit testing right. and uh, test-driven development is that uh, it's really difficult to get right. There's just all kinds of cases where it just doesn't work. So there's a lot of controversy. It's not a universal thing. There are too many cases. There are cases like GUIs where you can't do it. Or think about the example where you've got a really mature product that's been around for a long time, and you have a million tests in your test-driven development suite, a million little unit tests. And now every time you make even the smallest change, if it affects 0.1% of those tests, now you've got 10,000 tests to rewrite. So test-driven development yeah, and unit testing is uh, very, very valuable, very, very powerful, uh, but also... It's not like a universal, everybody should have this 100% on all things, no matter what. Uh, if you do it that way, uh, you're not probably not being 100% smart. So, The way I describe it, and, th and this is something I stole from Fowler, who had a quote on this, is like, as a programmer, you don't just write code and then you know 
check it in. You write code, you run it in some way to exercise it, right? To make, unless you're pathologically bad. Or pathologically good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, or you're that good. You're like a ninja who doesn't ever need to run the code. You just check everything in. You're, you know, like Nuth or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, just taking that process where you, you, the manual ad hoc testing that you do, think about how could I you know, don't repeat myself. How could I avoid having to do this the next time I touch this code? Because the next time you touch the code, you're going to have to do the same exact thing, right? You have to, well, now I run it and I type some stuff in and I make sure it works. So part of, I think, getting on the road towards testing, and I agree it's a very, very long, hard road, um, is thinking how can you avoid doing the same things over and over, e.g. manually testing your stuff every time you make a change to it. So if you think about it more in terms of take what you're already doing manually and just come up with some framework for doing that automatically, um, then I think you, you get the right mindset of what it's trying to accomplish. It's not trying to create more work for you, necessarily. It's trying to reduce the amount of work you do in the longer term. It does take a little bit more work to set up unit tests, but ultimately, say you make 50 changes in that code, well, that's 50 times you don't have to run the app, type some stuff in, press enter, and see what happens. You just, you know, does the unit test run, then okay, it works. Of course, then you have the issue of, okay, the unit tests may not be sufficient, they might not be testing some case that uh, actually fails. So it, it does take some effort. Uh, but that's the way I like to look at it, and that's, I think, something Fowler expressed. Mm -hmm. And I like the way he said that. So uh, another thing that we do yeah. that's kind of fun now is uh, we... One of the things that I struggle with on websites is, like, what version is a website? Like, do you guys have a version number on Fogbird? Yeah, there's four. <laughs> yeah. Four? I think so. I think there's a major uh, version, which is six. There's a minor version, which is one, and it's going to go up to two. There's but is it on the page? Yeah, or? it's on the home page. You've got you to gotta click on the Kiwi. It's the bottom there. Oh, yeah, version 6.1.308. Yeah, the H means host. DB630, yeah. Gen 1. Wow, that's a lot well, of Well, the numbers. database itself has a version number, which may or may not go up every ah. time. That's, the, that's the, basically like the file format version number, effectively. And there's some code that's like, oh, right. you're using a database version 3, but we now have some new features, so we're going to upgrade you to database version 4. And that, is, uh, okay. that doesn't have to sync with uh, uh, releases that we release to customers. And actually, the QA team has recently demanded that we start producing build numbers. As well, so there'll be a fourth number on there. Oh, yeah. Uh, so ours is a little simpler than that for now, um, but we do sync up with the subversion. Um, I don't know what you call it, but like the check-in number, the ner number of the subversion database, like a three-digit number now until we check in more, I guess. Wait, um, but so at any given point, if you go to the file, website, right? So it's just no. It's just a total number of the current the oh, head. Oh, right, 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 right. Basically. It's the number that represents getting latest at a current version. Yeah. Uh, they don't call it getting latest. They call it... That makes sense. You can use that as the so-called build number, which is the lowest thing. Yeah. Yeah, but this is a great point, too. When I worked on projects, um, I certainly agree that the database getting out of sync with the code was one of the major sticking points. It was like, well, the database should be versioned, which it, it is in source control. Uh, we have it in source control, so we're not repeating that particular uh, failure mode. Um, but it is good to actually keep a version, an explicit version number in the database. So if something goes wrong and you deploy the latest code to, you know, two versions ago database, you don't just immediately blow up. Maybe there's something that actually checks that number at startup. Uh, so a, a great your situation point. is a little bit different uh, than Fogbugs because you guys will only ever be running against one database. Well, true. Although once we get into the the beta, we're going to have multiple databases on the same box because we're going to development has to go in parallel with the beta. So there'll actually be multiple databases. There, and then you start to run into problems like I have a stored procedure in my database and it takes three arguments and I want to expand it to take four arguments and I, I, but I can't, but, but the, the person calling the stored procedure in the code has to change at the same time as the database changes, which can't happen in a production database. So you have to make a new version of the stored procedure that takes four arguments. You name it, you know, underscore two or something. And you start calling that from the new code while the old code still uses the old function. And it's kind of sickening. But that's like Yeah, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of ghetto. But I think even the Windows API does that. Don't they have like .ex yeah, yeah. methods? And then they call it ex and then ex2. <laughs> they have numbers to it. Yeah, that's, that's a tough problem. Uh, I don't know how I would solve that. Um, so uh, probably on, on Stack Overflow, the next thing to talk about is... Uh, Gosh, there's been a lot going on this week. Yeah. 
Uh, really? Cool. <laughs> Sorry, I have, I have some notes here. I just lost track of what I wasn't talking about. Let's move on to something totally different. Okay, actually. let's take a question. Uh, All right, unless you have something okay. different on your list. You sounded like you had something on, on a list there. I do, but we can come back to it. All right. No, come on. Give me your question. It's probably better than... Well, it's not really a question. I was just going to talk about the Petzold book. I really oh, like it. The Turing book. Petzold book on Turing. I have not read that. Yeah. So Turing's uh, famous paper on computability is essentially the basis for all modern computers. Mm-hmm. He basically invented computers, uh, all modern computers, in like 1936 with this one paper. There's some other work going on from people that sort of got similar results, but but Turing's the one that generally gets most of the credit for this paper. So... Petzold spent nine years writing this book. <laughs> well, he did uh, all about during that time. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, but it, but you know this was a long-term project for him, and it's amazing. He posted on his blog all the research he had done over the last nine years. He posted a picture of his bookshelf, all the books he had used to research the Turing stuff to get the background, because he talks about the history. Um, you know, pretty much every aspect of the paper is is examined. All the context, all all the the related topics are spidered out into as well. Um, and he has like five bookshelves worth of books, like literally. It's like, okay, here's my bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, un- it's clearly like nine years wow. worth of books that he's been reading on this topic. Uh, it's very exhaustive. But what I like about the book, and not to pimp the book too much, but I just really enjoyed it because I, I love history. Like it's it's writing about people more than code, you know, or, or really both things at once because he's examining Turing in the context of you know, the mid-30s, all the research that was going on. Um, and then, you know, the other things that Turing did, because Turing uh, was one of the main guys who solved the Enigma encryption problem in World right. War II. So he examines that. And then Turing actually, I don't know how much, how much do you know about Turing and history and what actually happened to him? It's actually kind I, of I sad. do know because there was a great play. What was that play called? Of the Enigma something? Here, let's ask the Google. Breaking the code. Is that it? Breaking the code. Was that a play? Yes, that that sounds yes. right. Uh, so, oh uh, yeah, that was that was. I mean, it was a Broadway play, a a, a theater play uh, about his life. Right. And you saw this. I did. Play. In, In London, New York City, perhaps. In London, wow, very impressive. Maybe it's New York. Uh, yeah, so it's a little bit of a sad story. It has it's it's kind of like with those. Well, I, I'm a pop culture maven, so I'm going to turn this into a pop culture reference. Those behind the music mm-hmm. things, where they cover bands that are become very successful, they almost always have a dark side because success kind of ruins you on some mm-hmm. level. Like you have access to all these really bad things and these negative people, and you have all this mm-hmm. money. Now, I'm not saying that happened to Turing, but it's like that in that Turing did all these one of the most brilliant minds in in computer science. I mean, he's called literally the father of computer science for mm-hmm. that reason. And here's a guy who was completely persecuted to the point that he actually killed mm-hmm. himself uh, because he was mm-hmm. gay uh, in the late 50s. And I, I, it really pains me to even read about that. I mean, this is a guy who basically beat the Nazis, yeah. right? Had this, I mean, even in his time, I'm sure he was viewed as like a major, like an Einstein-like mm-hmm. mind uh, in the field of, of computing, uh, and that didn't seem to matter. I mean, he was persecuted like, you know, just a common hooligan. And uh, it's just really sad the way his life ended. He actually ate a cyanide-dipped apple. Uh, so overtones of, I guess, Snow White or the Bible or whatever you want to read into or, uh, that. So, yeah, Socrates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Socrates, yeah. thank you. Um, yeah. and, and, and Newton as well. Yeah. So, yeah, the apple is a very... Bogman. There was a, there is a uh, made-for-TV movie uh, of the play. I see here, uh, which you can see. I wonder if they've made it a DVD or something. But I, I'm just flipping through the book. I love this book. This is, you know, I've complained, and I felt bad, because I don't know if you saw, but I really sort of railed on Petzl's other book, which is on uh, Windows uh, WPF oh. book. You didn't like it? Uh, I really gave that a very negative review, because I felt like it was the wall of text problem. Uh. And the sad thing is, Petzold is such a brilliant writer. I mean, when he's writing about history, I mean, he just makes it really come alive. Like, all the background, all the history, all the reasons this stuff well, matters. His book on, this is a very dense... His book, book on Win32 programming, or Windows programming in general, the original programming Windows, uh, was one of the best written, clearest written 
books I've ever read about programming. Well, I think that's my point, is that Petzold is such a good yeah. writer that he's kind of wasting himself on really narrow technical topics. Yeah. Like something like this, which lies at the intersection of like people and history and computing, it's a really meaty topic with a lot of stuff you can talk about to explain it. And it's not like you know the latest you know API du jour. Yeah, no, and I think he recognizes um, that he's wasting himself because I kind of get the feeling that one of the reasons he's writing these books about touring is because the WPF book was you know not a huge seller and you can no longer make a living writing books about programming Windows. Well, that's funny then, because I'm I'm not sure a book about Turing is going to be like. You know, well, it's got a it'll have a mainstream audience on it. I mean, surely the New York Review of Books or whatever will review it, and he'll uh, sell. Perhaps. You know, way more. Than, it's still pretty. It's still. It's still pretty dense, but it, I think it's the kind of book that ten or twenty years from now will still be totally, totally relevant, and I think that's great because Petzold is such a good writer that he really deserves uh, books that have longevity that people will come back yeah. to. Um, so I, I was really just excited for Charles when I got the book because I, I really enjoyed it too. So I, I recommend it. I mean, anyone, anyone listening, definitely get a copy of The Annotated Turing if you have any interest at all. Okay. Uh, the Annotated Turing by Charles Petzold, available from your favorite bookstore. This will, you know what, this will right. sell to the general, to like a general history of science audience. Sure. Sure. I, I think it will. More than a programming will. book. I mean, a Do programming we, book that sells 10,000 copies is a bestseller, and that's just pathetic. Yeah, no, don't write books. I had a whole long email change with someone who wanted to write a book, and I was really trying to talk him out of it. And I don't know. Do you have any words on that? Joel? Yeah, you've written some programs. I have, but your books are. You know what? I have a new book that just came out. Really it's called More Joel on Software. <laughs> it's the further. Oh, yep. You do? It's the further calling. Uh huh. And a week oh, ago. So yeah, it's a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of articles from Joel on Software. It's sort of the continuation, and combined with Joel on Software, uh, the book. If you combine those two. You have pretty much all the good stuff from uh, from Joel and Software. So I didn't. Uh, there's nothing new in the book, and I should make that clear. If you've been following along, if you've been reading my blog since the beginning of time, you've read all this stuff. But uh, it's a lot of material, and having it in book form is a great way to read it for the first time or uh, give it to somebody uh, or put it right. on your shelf. Do you think that your blog turns well into a book? I mean, because I've been approached for that, and I've always poo-pooed it because I, I think my blog in particular does not translate. Well, to that format, I think yours eh. might. But I mean, what do you do? Like chapters? How do you organize it? I mean, do you just group by topic? Yeah. Well, there's like se sections by topic, yeah. So there's sort of a th there's a bit of a theme, but it really is like reading a collection of essays and not like reading a single book. But then again, you know what? It's a book, a bunch right. of chapters. Um, and, did we, you mentioned we had some and, more calls to go to. Um, good question. Let's take a call. Uh, here's a uh, here's one uh, from uh, Nicholas. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name's Nick, and I'm from Sydney, Australia. My question is, do you have any advice to someone that wants to get involved in a tech startup that's not in Silicon Valley? I get the feeling from Paul Graham's essays that you need to be in Silicon Valley because it's a startup hub. Thanks, guys, and keep the podcasts coming. So uh, Silicon Valley startup hub... Um I personally think that the negatives of Silicon Valley uh, outweigh the positives. But you live in New York City, so you're biased. True. That's true. You know, when I see the kind of crap that comes out of Silicon Valley, <laughs> I mean, seriously, just look at TechCrunch and read about all the startups, and it's all the same thing, and there's just a group think going on there. And the people are just piling onto social networking with every possible variation of social networking. And it's also on original, and it's there's something about the groupthink that happens in Silicon Valley that I think uh, makes it uh, uh, really, really difficult to uh, stand out and, and succeed. And the minute that you start to fall a little bit behind, all your good employees f flee to the next big, exciting startup because there's always something more exciting, uh, you know, over the next road or in the same building or down the street. So I think to me the question is about. It's about locality and, and teamwork. So I, I think now with the internet being so mature, it, it's possible for people to work remotely. I mean, look at my team. So I have a guy in Corvallis, Oregon. I have a guy in uh, Morganton, North Carolina. Um, and then I have me and you, and we are we have a virtual team, right? We're four different people and four different dots on the globe. Mm -hmm. Well, all in the U.S., technically. Um, but time zones can be a challenge, I will say that, and I've heard that many, many times before. When you have many time zones separating you from your coworkers, you just get on very different cycles 
uh, and it can be painful to work together. And I think there's also something to be said for physical presence. I mentioned when Jared was here visiting California, it was really fun for me to work next to him. And I also noticed like when uh, Jeff and Jared were, were essentially on vacation for a little while, I was working sort of alone on the code, and I felt very isolated. It was weird to not have anybody to type like uh, instant messages to to ask questions or you know send an email and get a quick response back and you know working in isolation kind of sucks too so i think what you got to balance there is how much do you value physical presence versus you know the virtual working world of being on skype and you know instant messaging and things like that um now, Joel, you probably don't have any remote employees at Fog Creek, right? Everybody works in your office. Yeah, it's just banned. It's we just we, we, we will never do it. Right, and and <laughs> the place I worked before that w- that was the model, and it, there's a lot to be said for that because you get a really nice team dynamic. There. I mean, yeah. don't underestimate the power of physical presence. It really does help you write, I think, better code sure. to have people that you can talk to and go to and just have that. But wait, you guys wait, this sit down have lunch. This is all very interesting, but that wasn't the guy's question exactly, which is, can you do it like from Sydney, for example? And Well, I think, well, I, okay. So maybe I interpreted the question a certain way. As, uh, well, uh, no. Certainly. I mean, can you be virtual or not virtual is an interesting question. We can sort of debate. Um, but, but that's not exactly what he was asking. He was asking, like, do you have to be in a tech hub to, to make a startup uh, successful? Oh, um, for like he was founding a startup. Yeah, I think so. Isn't that his? Uh, oh, okay. I, I maybe I misinterpreted the question. I apologize. Let's play it again. No, let's not. Let, let me just answer that one though. Uh, and my, my feeling is <laughs> sure. that's why I was saying sort of my feeling is, uh, hey, uh, you know, we're in New York, and I feel like we've benefited and we've lost, and that the benefits have outweighed the, lo- the losses. Uh, and the, the biggest two benefits that I see directly is a lack of groupthink, so you're more likely to do something original and, and different. And uh, instead of just making pet pet food like everybody else is, pet food on the internet, and um, and secondly the the lack of competition for the good engineers, which uh, is not true everywhere, but um, that really means if you're in a place that has a high percentage of engineers or programmers or highly technical people or creative people, um, you know, maybe Melbourne more than Sydney uh, in Australia, but uh, then uh, relative to the number of startups where they can work. Uh, You'll find an easier time of recruiting and maintaining and keeping people around, and that's the most crucial part. That said, I should mention that I have never known an Australian company to uh, succeed without an outpost in the United States to at least do sales in the right time zone. Uh, and it's usually one of the first things uh, that they do is figure out how to get set up in the States and get those Qantas frequent flyer miles uh, because it is uh, – very hard not to. And then the same thing holds for Israeli startups, many of which I'm familiar with, and all of whom probably set up their U.S. office literally on the first day uh, that they get they get set up. Uh, that said, you know, there's not as much of a of, a, of an angel or a VC uh, community in in places like Australia. Although there's some, uh, it's uh, relatively weak compared to California. Uh, but then there's not as much competition. So. Right. So then you. So that was good. We gave you two dimensions to your question. Mine was more like, "Do you want to work for a startup?" Yeah. <laughs> and Joel's was, "Are you founding a startup?" Yeah. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interpret it the wrong way. But hey, two two for the price of one. Hey, maybe That's you right. had it right. <laughs> maybe that twist thing. What about big? It's possible. I think his advice is what to do if you're if you're if you're uh, not in a place like Silicon Valley. Uh, is this going to hurt? You know, there are there are certain places where you see a lot of startups coming from. You know, our biggest competition in the bug tracking market is uh, uh, a Sydney-based company. So um, that that they were certainly successful uh, starting there. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, uh, outside of the United States, there are places like uh, Israel. Uh, Skype came from Europe, uh, came from uh, the Netherlands, and a lot of programmers from Estonia. And um, let's see, uh, there's a, there's some pretty big companies that came from Czechoslovakia, from uh, not from France so much or England. I don't know why. But uh, yeah, actually, England, there's a lot of UK-based companies that have done great things. Uh, so right. yes, it's definitely, I mean, it's possible to be, be anywhere. Eric Sink will tell you that it's great being in Champaign, uh, Illinois, in the little farm town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there, there are pros and cons. Certainly. Uh, do we have another question? Yeah, why not? This is uh, this taking us back a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about uh, Silverlight, as you remember, and I, I believe that what we both said was that Silverlight is, um, you know, as long like as the, Flash, but yeah, as long as the model is a rectangle embedded in a web page, 
that's its own little sandbox. It's going to go the way of Java and Flash, which is you know useful for some things, uh, but not truly in this of the grain of the web. That's kind of what wait, Joel. How about how about a how about a rounded rectangle? <laughs> well, heck, if you could round it, that changes everything. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. A whole different world. Yeah. Uh, hey guys, this is Steve Boland calling from New York City. Just want to let you know I'm really enjoying the podcast. I hope you keep it up. Joel, I think in episode 11 you spent a considerable amount of time talking about the problems with Silverlight adoption and ultimately Flash adoption as well, being that it kind of breaks a lot of the web navigation paradigm uh, in that uh, you can't copy URLs out of your browser address and, and ultimately the back button sort of destroys the user experience. And I was curious how you reconcile some of those statements with a lot of the things that are going on in AJAX-enabled websites, where it seems to me that an awful lot of the same criticism could ultimately be leveled at AJAX-enabled sites as well, um, where, again, you can visit a site and spend a lot of time on it, and not once does the URL and the address bar change. Uh, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, hitting the back button obviously destroys your navigation as well. So I was just curious um, if you could maybe talk a little bit about how you reconcile those two things. Um, when AJAX adoption obviously seems to be a positive, um, but something like Flash and Silverlight is typically frowned on as, as being against the grain. So, um, again, I just want to thank you guys for the podcast, and I hope you keep it up. I look forward to it every week. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, so that's a, uh, a, a question that sort of, I think you almost answered it yourself there, Stephen, which is, you know, Silverlight versus AJAX, does it break the web? Obviously, we don't like, you know, AJAX is not all good, and Silverlight is not all bad, and it, there's no conflict in saying that some aspects of AJAX can be bad, and uh, and it depends on how you use AJAX. Uh, you know, there's there's basically two approaches to building an AJAX application uh, that people have taken, and uh, one approach, uh, we'll call it the Gmail approach, is the pure JavaScript approach, which is that once you get on the page, everything's going to be generated by JavaScript, and all the interactions and everything that happens on that page are going to be entirely within JavaScript, and there's no history, and the, the, the browser's not really involved at all. Uh, and then there's sort of the hybrid approach, which says that you're still using HTML for most navigation. Uh, when somebody clicks on an email message, for example, if you were using the hybrid approach, that would navigate to a page that showed that email message. And the AJAX is uh, just there to speed up certain interactions within the page. Um, and if you ever do something with AJAX that appears to be a navigation, then you use one of uh, many well-documented tricks to uh, convince the browser that, that the history should behave in a certain way so that you can go back and that the back button will still work in the way that it was expected. And that's the approach that Fogbugs takes, for example. So when you use Fogbugs, it really does feel like HTML navigation, but then there's just this rich, rich, rich world of all kinds of AJAX everywhere that makes things fast and, and, and uh, spiffy. So uh, you, can, you can do the broken navigation uh, the AJAX way, or you can, if you do an AJAX, you don't have to. You can use the kind of the hybrid model, which is more of an HTML-y kind of navigation, a more classic web navigation with URLs that are meaningful, and just AJAX to enhance the pages uh, that you're on. Now, that said, there's nothing wrong with the Gmail model. There's nothing wrong with building an application and making it a website. If your application just does a bunch of stuff and doesn't even have a concept of navigation moving amongst different pages of content, uh, then... Um, uh, then, then you you may be uh, fine uh, building something uh, in the pure Ajaxy way. Uh, so, for example, if it's a if it's a stock trading application that's going to show you level two quotes where there's little quotes showing up uh, for, for stock prices that you can click on and do things and trade and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know if I would want back to work in that situation. That's not really a classic web content kind of situation. So, if you're doing something where you're displaying and showing content that's a bunch of pages, you're navigating amongst uh, between them. Um, something like a news or, or mail uh, does seem to me like it's navigation oriented. Uh, that kind of content navigation, I feel like it should be done the HTML way. Well, I, I think a lot of what you said, could, and I agree with all that, uh, could be summed up as the, the theory of progressive enhancement, right? Where you start with something that's sort of HTML, like a form, for example, and then you add like an autocomplete box that's you know an AJAX thing. It's, it's a nice to have. It doesn't break the form. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. when you type, it doesn't auto-suggest. But it's sure nice. Like in your mail program, for example, like Gmail, when you type, it you know, auto-completes you know, email addresses, which is hugely convenient. Yeah. Uh, but I could still do it manually if I had that off. Right. So the theory of progressive enhancement, I think, is very powerful. And it's something that people brought up to me when I talked about should we require JavaScript? Somebody forwarded me a link to the progressive enhancement stuff. And, and I think that, in a nutshell, is the difference. Whereas you know, the, the rectangle or rounded rectangle in the browser pretty much throws all that stuff away. There's no progressive enhancement. It's utter replacement. 
mm-hmm. right? So it's like the classic sort of Microsoft embrace and extend uh, applied to the browser. It's like let's but just it's take sort of more than that. It's like it's not embrace. It's it's embrace and smother and replace. Because <laughs> well, the made, Ajax, I made the JavaScript. A progressive enhancement is a classic embrace and extend. Which that's is, what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and that really was um, – Embrace and Extend was really one of the very, very early ways that Microsoft decided to attack the internet problem, which is that they looked at the internet and they saw these great protocols like email that were very popular, but the, but the protocols were very simple and needed features added to them. And Microsoft's approach was, well, God, how can you have an email system that doesn't have this feature and that feature and this feature? And so their idea was Embrace, i.e. do the exact protocol, and then Extend, provide a thing, whereas if it happens to be a Microsoft client talking to a Microsoft server, you get some extra functionality. And that was embrace and extend, and so that's what the uh, yeah you're right. That's the JavaScript slash AJAX model is really embrace, do it the HTML way, and then extend it optionally for people that are all up to date on everything. And uh, the Silverlight way and the ActiveX way and the the Java way is just like replace and smother. Yeah, <laughs> no, I I agree, and I I think that's really the issue in a nutshell is. Progressive enhancement is where it's at. And also, i got to emphasize again, we, we use jQuery, and there's a number of really mature JavaScript, a, basically APIs, right? Is that what you would call them? Where yep. they abstract away all the browser differences. Because the challenge with JavaScript is always there's still these really aggravating differences in how the browsers do things mm-hmm. that will really trip you up. You'll spend hours troubleshooting just ridiculous things. But now you don't have to because there's these... These libraries have been out for, I think jQuery's been out for almost two years now. Yeah. They've really got a nice abstraction layer that you can write to that targets all the browsers. You don't have to wor- worry about maintaining all the you know, 50 umptillion different browser versions. And there's a bunch of people beating on this stuff. You're not one guy out in the wilderness writing your own custom JavaScript anymore. Uh, this is something that lots of sites use. Right. So I think the emergence of those is, is a very big deal. Um, and it certainly has made our life much easier on Stack Overflow. It's actually made working with the browser kind of a joy, not the chore of, oh, now I've got to worry about all these crazy JavaScript things. As mm-hmm. long as you write to the API, it, it kind of makes sense, uh, and it works. So I would say you know, definitely look at uh, jQuery and Scriptalicious and Dojo and all these other libraries that are out there. How did you decide to use uh, – what made you decide on jQuery? Well, I really relied on Jared. Uh, one of my teammates who was very enthusiastic about it. And one of my approaches towards, I guess you call it, quote-unquote, management, is uh, if somebody's really passionate about something, they get to own that thing. Because I feel like, <laughs> well, because I really believe this. I believe that the people who care the most about something should own it because yeah. they, they care that much to have that strong of an opinion. I love and keeping one, the bathrooms clean. That's why <laughs> I'm in charge of keeping the bathrooms clean here at Fog Creek. Yes. Exactly. If only we could find people that love janitorial work as much as we love <laughs> programming. Uh, but I, I really do believe that. And obviously I trust Jared. I mean, he's one of the smartest programmers I've worked with, so that's not an issue. So I, I do believe that. And one of the failure modes of a lot of my previous jobs was the people who didn't care were put in charge of the people who did care. <laughs> and I feel like that is inherently very, very wrong and just a, a, an anti-pattern of, of the most classic kind. You know, one of those uh, one of those books that was on the reading list that I didn't make anybody read because it was just another one of these histories was the history of digital, uh, or DEC, and uh, they had a principle uh, at at digital which was uh, very um, important, I think, among the uh, top management, uh, the you know the executive management crew, which they called they had a different word for it, digital. They called it administration uh, to emphasize the fact that they weren't making the decisions; they were just sort of keeping the trains running on time. Uh, much like the administration department in a university, which is not, you know, obviously not in charge of research and is not in any way seen as being above the professors in any way. Uh, it's there to serve the professors by by keeping the, the lights on and so forth. And so um, so they called it administration at, at uh, Digital, which I should probably adopt at Fog Creek once there's more of us. Uh, and uh, anyway, they had a principle among the administrative uh, people that uh, if you propose it, you own it. I.e., if somebody stood up in a meeting and said, I really think digital should be in the mini-computer business, I guess they were in the mini-computer business, or whatever the case may be, uh, then everybody would say, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you do that? And you were the person to do it if you were the one who proposed it. And if you didn't have time because you were busy and you didn't have resources, well, tough luck. Maybe that's not the most important thing to do right now. And so one of the things that did is that, 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 first of all, gave you permission to do things if you propose them. But it also kind of ungave you permission to 
to blame somebody else for the fact that something didn't get done. Right. And uh, we've had a little bit of that around Fog Creek, which, which I sort of need to emphasize that point a little more, which is that uh, people say, oh, Fog Creek should do this and Fog Creek should do that, and by which they mean I should do this and I should do that. <laughs> <laughs> all should implement these things or hire somebody to implement them. And uh, I'm sort of uh, stretched to the limit right now. <laughs> so um, right. if you want to propose something, you got to do it. If it's a great idea, you know, go for it uh, and implement it. But uh, you've got to do it yourself because I'm not going to do it for you. Yes, or you can do what I do with my wife, is, which is I say, you can do whatever you want, and then I'm just going to criticize it. Right? I'm just going to stand here <laughs> criticize whatever you do. So I hope you enjoy that. <laughs> Arms akimbo. <laughs> right, exactly. No, here's why what you're doing is totally wrong. I didn't have time to explain it until you did it, and now I see how wrong it is. And, yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, how did we get onto that? Uh, oh, yeah, we uh, were talking about uh, the great JavaScript libraries that exist and how you um, – uh, yeah, there's also uh, uh, Yahoo has one, UE, what's it called, Yahoo. Uh, oh, yeah, the Yahoo user interface library. They have a bunch of really nice resources. i got to say, the whole Yahoo-Microsoft merger, I was kind of scratching my head because I was like, what do I really use from Yahoo on a daily basis? And really not much because I don't use Flickr. Um, I go to the news page every now and then. But i got to say, one of the really, really bright lights is uh, the, the whole Yahoo uh, web developer experience is huge. Like, they have that Y slow tool, which mm-hmm. is very, very cool. Uh, and a bunch of JavaScript libraries. Like, we're yeah. using their JavaScript uh, CSS reset on Stack Overflow, which ah, yeah, basically unstyles yeah. everything so all the browsers kind of render the same. So, yeah, no, I love what they're doing in that area. Yep. So definitely another great resource. And they are sharing it with the world, which is great. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's sort of like reminds me of the old days of IBM where, you know, the company was just falling apart. But there were these ridiculously generous resources for the community that IBM would make available, like a complete searchable index of all patents on the Internet and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of things that they did like that, uh, even when they really couldn't afford to be doing this, <laughs> just because nobody had bothered to shut it down. So that's the way I feel like Yahoo is sort of like in this weird state where it's not clear what's going on there and things are falling apart left and right, but they're still doing these great things for, for people. Yeah, no, that's definitely something people should check out. I'll link that in the show notes. So mm-hmm. I have lost track of time because I screwed up and made us split this call into two parts, but I well, think we're probably at an hour. Yeah, we're pretty close to an hour. I just want to add one last thing. What is it? Oh, uh, Oh, yeah, first of all, I have an announcement which is uh, if you're in the New York area or you can be in the New York area on July 17th, which I guess is a week from Thursday, uh, uh, we're having an open house here at Fog Creek at the old office. This is your last chance to see our uh, brilliant uh, bionic office designed by a brilliant architect before we move into a far more pedestrian but slightly cooler office, but just not as neat. Um, so anyway, uh, 5 p.m. July 17th uh, in New York. Uh, look on Joel and Software in the upper right-hand corner, and it's got the address there, or just go to fogcreek.com. We're at 535 8th Avenue, and uh, there will be wine and cheese, and you can meet our summer interns, and it'll be a lot of fun. So that's the open and, house. And you're going to check to see if people know C, like at the door, right? Yes, uh, you'll be required to uh, copy a string in the C programming language. Before you can enter, you must know C. I just want to warn any potential visitors. That's, that's <laughs> requirement. Fog Creek offices. So, uh, do I have any other announcements? Um, Blog Talk Radio uh, is the way to. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, you know what we should we need to set up? I, I've noticed that about half the callers are actually using Blog Talk Radio, which is really actually it's not. If you go to blogtalkradio.com, you'll never find it. It's a thing at blogtalkradio.com/slash cinch, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It it's linked on our on our blog as well. It's always it's always linked on our on our blog at blog.stackoverflow.com. Yeah. But uh, it's a, it's an easy way to record an MP3. And I really wish we could set up a phone number that just went right into an MP3 into email. So somebody probably knows how to do that. I guess we could probably do it with Skype or something. I have to leave it running. Anyway, if somebody could suggest a way where we could get a phone number for the for the show that people could call into, and it would show up uh, as an MP3 in my inbox. It's basically an email. It's like a voicemail to inbox MP3 recording phone number service. Well, Joel, since you're so passionate about this feature, does that mean you want to own it? I will own it. I'm just um, kidding. No, you don't have to own it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll do it. Because uh, uh, I notice that, that uh, an awful lot of people are, are recording questions that way, and, and they're good questions, and I like them. So um, so we want to just have a phone number because it's a little bit easier than Blog Talk Radio. And if we could use Blog Talk Radio and there was a way to do this, I would pay them. But right. probably isn't. Um, 
So if you have any suggestions for how to do that and you know of a way that's easy to set up, uh, easy to use and doesn't cost too much, um, send a voice recording <laughs> to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com and uh, we'll uh, play it on the air and we'll, we'll do that. Um, other announcements, as usual, uh, there's a transcript of this site maintained by volunteers like you uh, for the benefit of the uh, hearing impaired and people that just want to read the, the contents of the show. And uh, so um, if you have a couple of minutes, uh, it's done in, as a cooperative wiki. So basically everybody goes in there and they just all transcribe one or two sentences from the show, one or two minutes from the show. Uh, and uh, it's a great service and uh, they are getting transcribed, which is great. Uh, so... Um, yeah, and I wanna, if you want to be, and if you want to be in the Stack Overflow beta, do a little bit of transcription, and I will be happy to add you to the beta list. Yeah, that is currently the only way to get into the Stack Overflow beta is to do a little bit of transcription, and then right. ask Jeff. Yes. Um, so. That's about it. So I guess we'll uh, see you next week. Yep. See you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Cherney. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.